Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I am Michele Matarazzo from DHM SINAC in Madrid, Spain. Today we will discuss an article that has been published on the February 2022 Movement Disorder Journal titled Diffusion Magnetic Resonance Imaging Detects Progression in Parkinson's Disease, a placebo-controlled trial of rosagiline. The last author of this paper is Professor David Ballancourt from the University of Florida, who is joining us from Gainesville in Florida, US. Hello, David, and thank you for joining. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's a thrill. You decided to do a trial on rosagiline as a possible disease-modifying agent in Parkinson's disease. Why did you decide to study this? And uh, what is the background of this hypothesis? So the, the kind of reason we got into doing some of the imaging studies uh, some time ago was really because of the initial New England Journal of Medicine paper published in 2009 by Olenow and colleagues looking at one milligram or two milligram dose of rosagiline. Really important study because I think it sort of revealed a lot of problems in the way that we assess disease-modifying therapies, but it also showed promise for rosagiline. The one milligram dose did do quite well in that study. The effects at two milligram were not there in terms of a disease-modifying agent. So uh, we were just motivated to evaluate that therapy to see if it could have any effect on disease modification. And and our work over the last uh, decade or so has been looking at developing imaging-based biomarkers on magnetic resonance imaging that might be tracking progression in PD. And so we have, I think, viable markers in the toolkit, and we wanted to test a viable therapy on them. Great. And actually, that leads to my next question, which is, uh, you decided to use a, a different main primary outcome for this trial, which is the free water in magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, this is not usual because in most studies, they use clinical outcomes or clinical measures to measure the progression of, of Parkinson's disease or even the symptomatic effect on, on Parkinson's disease. So why did you decide to go for this non-clinical result? And uh, also, do you think this is the best possible option as a biomarker for Parkinson's disease? Or maybe are there other possible biomarkers out there that could be useful, let's say still in your imaging, the FDG PET imaging with the PD-related pattern, for example, or maybe quantitative motor assessment that could also be uh, interesting to monitor disease progression. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. The reason to utilize an imaging marker in, in the first place is not that we don't think a clinical outcome is important. I think the clinical outcome is, is absolutely fundamental. Without a solid clinical outcome in a trial, I don't think any therapy is going to be approved by government agencies to be utilized as a disease-modifying agent. Having said that, I think government agencies also, and I think neurologists in the field, are motivated whenever you see a biological variable and a clinical variable, which converge to show efficacy of a therapy. And I think when you have both of those hitting at once, then that, that's when you start to believe a therapy might have viability. We also felt like it could be quite useful in future clinical trials as sort of a model to, to look at. So the way that the Adagio study was done, which is a delayed start paradigm, it's really a high bar. I mean, it's a really difficult study design to get that effect. I don't think it's a trivial effect to get. And I think a, a simpler study design, which is to follow patients at one time point to another, having a biomarker of relevance that should not be really amenable to acute changes from other pharmacological therapies. So You know, I think we all know the unified PD rating scale, the motor symptoms, particularly part three, will change if you give a patient levodopa. This, this scale can change by up to half sometimes in some patients because 
patients respond to uh, dopaminergic therapy. So to have a, a, a primary outcome variable that is so amenable to change, I think it's difficult to use as the sole primary outcome variable in clinical trials looking for disease-modifying therapy because it becomes difficult to tease apart a symptomatic therapy from a disease-modifying therapy. And, you know, why we used free water in the substantia nigra in the study, there's a, a few reasons, and it's not to say that it's the only one out there, because there, there are a few other markers out there that I think show promise. We published a paper a few years ago in Brain in 2017, where we looked at free water in the substantia nigra, and it was compared with uh, dopamine transporter imaging in terms of a, a power analysis. And, and it seemed to be quite favorable in terms of detecting progression effects and potential to, to detect a drug effect in a hypothetical clinical trial. So the sample size that came out of free water in the substantia nigra is quite favorable, comparable to DATSCAN. So we felt like that was a technique that showed promise and, and might have a lot of uh, impact. And we all know the substantia nigra is just fundamental in Parkinson's disease. It's certainly not the only structure that's important. Many other parts of the brain are important, but I, I do think the substantia nigra is really fundamental. And so my kind of feeling is if if one is not slowing down degenerative changes in the substantia nigra, then it, it, it's going to be hard to really slow or stop the progression of the disease. So we felt like that that particular structure, because of its importance in the dopaminergic pathway and because it's one of the more consistent areas of pathology in the disease, we felt like targeting that structure in a disease-modifying trial made a lot of sense. The other you know, imaging markers that are out there, I think at the time we started this study, they weren't as established. So the, the PDRP is a great marker, but I don't know of a study that's done PDRP changes over one year. I've seen it, I think over two years and over four years, but I'm not aware of one that's done it over 12 months. It's a risk to power a study over one year based upon a two-year change in an outcome because one would assume that it's linear in that case and, and one doesn't know. You know. We never know the change of a variable over time unless we actually measure it. I think another technique that's out there that's shown promise is neuromelanin. That's, you know, based upon a modified T1 weighted sequence, but that data wasn't existent when we started the study. But I, I do think it has shown some promise as a nice marker in PD. Iron-based imaging is also out there. You know, I was looking at susceptibility weighted imaging. That's also a technique that's shown a lot of promise. So I think that there are a number of different promising imaging methods out there currently that can be used in clinical trials, certainly phase two type trials that, that companies might be interested in running, maybe not as their primary outcome variable, but as a secondary variable in their study. That is certainly something that companies would hopefully start to look at in the future, because I think government agencies are going to want to see clinical markers change and biomarkers change to approve these therapies. Well, I think you raise a lot of very, very interesting and good points. Uh, combining clinical and objective, I think you're right. It's going to be definitely needed in the future, uh, not just in Parkinson's disease. I think in general, neurodegeneration is definitely going to be the way this is going to be done in future clinical trials. And I also think you were saying a few different possible uh, neuroimaging biomarkers and maybe also a combination of different biomarkers could be uh, something very interesting to look at because, you know, you can combine different magnetic resonance imaging techniques uh, or even combining MRI with PET imaging or even combining different completely new neuroimaging with other kind of outcomes. Again, let's say uh, quantitative motor assessment, for example. And another very good point you raised is that it's good to have something objective and it is not influenced by a symptomatic effect. I think that's the other weak point, let's say, of the, the, the PDRP that, that is 
kind of responsive also to medication. And so if you have something that does not respond to dopaminergic medication, that's the biomarker you want to show this is modifying effect, as you were saying at the beginning. So I think those are very, very, very good points. Now that we know all the background, what are the main results of the trial? The trial looked at one milligram per day versus a placebo. It was the double-blind study, so the patients nor the investigators knew you know, which group the patients were in. And the study followed them at baseline and then about 12 months later. I have to say the trial also ended as COVID began, but we were able to complete the study and complete the trial. So having said all that, the, the study basically did not find evidence that resagiline at one milligram is slowing progression of free water in the substantia nigra over a one-year period of time. We didn't find really any evidence of that. The second key finding in the study was that the way you set up the imaging sequence, now the, the sequence to, to look at free water in general, not only in the substantia nigra, but you can look any any part of the brain, it doesn't require a contrast. We typically use it on three Tesla machines, but the sequence does require certain parameters that we think would be most advantageous. So we wanted to test a minimum set of parameters that we thought would be useful and compared that to another set of parameters, particularly the repetition time, the TR time. And so what we wanted to see was if the parameters were optimized to detect progression. And that's what we also found was that a certain type of sequence, which is certainly applicable on just about any clinical 3T machine is going to be able to detect progression. So we wanted to make sure that we knew the type of sequence that was most effective because there's a push from MR manufacturers to lower the repetition time because it saves time and data collection. And so we wanted to see if that was a factor and it was a factor in the study. So uh, we found that having a long TR time was better at detecting progression in the substantia nigra. And we talked a little bit about why that might be in the study. And then another key finding was that we were able to predict clinical changes over a year in the patients from baseline markers of free water. So the higher the measurement of free water in the substantia nigra, the worse the patients did after a year overall. So basically it seems to predict changes in the future rather than predicting the current state of the patient. So it seems to be a, a longer term predictor in the future, which is consistent with the previous evidence that we had found before. Well, there are few follow-up questions to all of these very interesting results. The first that comes to mind is, so there was no difference between rosagiline and placebo. Should we give up on rosagiline as a disease-modifying drug or... Do you think we should keep investigating it? Well, to be honest, I don't know. I think testing resagiline at the disease duration of the patients that we studied would probably be an unwise investment in the future. Does that mean the resagiline would not be effective in a preclinical cohort? No, not really. That That is quite possible. You know, maybe in an RBD cohort or another genetic cohort of PD. I wouldn't give up on it. I just think that I would use the information that we found in the study to think about other disease-modifying trials. The question you're raising is actually a very important question is, would any therapy be successful after several years of having PD? And I don't think we know that yet because no trial has been successful to date, which I think is really a fundamental question for the field. Yeah, definitely. But what are you going to do with free water in the future? And uh, specifically, what have you shown already uh, with free water in matter of diagnosis, differential diagnosis also, not only as biomarker of progression? And uh, what else do you plan to do in the future uh, with this very promising tool? What we've been doing the last, I would say, uh, three to five years has been kind of trying to understand what processes are, are changing that might influence free water. So we've been doing studies in animal models to manipulate 
inflammation without changes in neurodegeneration or to manipulate neurodegeneration where you would also have ongoing inflammation occurring. And what we've found is that both inflammation without neurodegeneration and neurodegeneration occurring both can elevate free water. And so both of those mechanisms are, of course, relevant in the loss of dopaminergic neurons or other cell types as well. So, so we think that the elevation of free water could potentially reflect ongoing inflammation or ongoing neurodegeneration. That, so that's a, a key set of findings. The other thing we've been doing, because free water is not, so like neuromelanin imaging, for example, is really focused on a couple of structures, maybe locus ceruleus or substantia nigra. Diffusion imaging, it's used in TBI, it's used in stroke, it's used in MS. So you can look at many parts of the brain using diffusion imaging. So what we've been doing most recently is trying to take a big data AI machine learning type approach where we sample lots of different parts of the brain and use a machine learning algorithm to see if we can predict clinical diagnosis uh, as an outcome variable. And we've been doing that, I think, successfully so far. And now we're testing some of the models that we've developed in a large perspective study ongoing right now, which is in the United States and in Canada. So that's what we're hoping to do is, is see if this approach where we combine data across MRI machines can be successful. It's not easy to combine data across MRI machines because there's different manufacturers. Everybody kind of has a different model. And, and so we're trying to see the extent to which we can combine them and utilize the data to predict clinical diagnosis to basically help in predicting differentiation between PD or other types of Parkinsonian disorders. Great. And just to understand that, are all the centers with 3T MR machines or is also 1.5 Teslas? Yeah, we're testing it all on 3T MR machines. You know, if you look in the literature, you'll see some studies at 1.5T using diffusion imaging and my kind of gut feeling is that it might work at 1.5T, but I just never tried it, and I, so I don't know. But I think given the number of 1.5T machines out there clinically, I think it's certainly something that should be looked at because, you know, if you're looking for impact outside of a research setting, 1.5T would certainly have a significant impact. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, a matter of how translational that is to actual clinical practice, 1.5T obviously, as of today's at least in most places, is uh, the standard of clinical practice. As you were saying in research, it's much more common to have 3T. But the first step is to, of course, to demonstrate this in the best case scenario, which is a 3T. And then maybe the next step will be to test this in 1.5. Yeah, I would like to in the future. We don't have an ongoing study right now doing that. Uh, we're focused at 3T. But yeah, I think once we have algorithms set, it would be certainly interesting to test at 1.5T. And I would love to do that. Well, thank you very much for your time. It has been a pleasure to have you on the NDS podcast. Thank you very much. We have had Professor David Ballancourt and we have discussed the article Diffusion Magnetic Resonance Imaging Detects Progression in Parkinson's Disease, a placebo-controlled trial of rosagiline from the Movement Disorders Journal. Don't forget to download the article and read it and uh, you can do that from the website of the journal. Thank you all for listening. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.